Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm Ann Stickney, one of two lore-focused writers from Blizzard Watch, and I've got both of my wonderful co-hosts with me today, and we have so much to talk about, so let's just jump into the introductions. First up, he's a shaman columnist, he's also a lore aficionado, and that would be Joe Perez. Hey, Joe! Well, hey there, everybody, and yes, we did have a busy weekend, me doubly so, because we also had Extra Life this weekend, so I want to take just a couple seconds to thank everybody who helped signal boost and raise money for extra life. Uh, Thank you so, so much for the last 25, 25 hours in gaming at this point. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Okay. That's really awesome. Did you guys hit your goal? We hit our goal. We actually hit above our goal as well. Uh, So it was really, really nice. That's amazing. All right. And then also with us, he's the other lore focused writer over on blizzard watch. And he's also apparently a prominent figure in Diablo Immortal, Matt Rossi. Hey, Rossi. Finally, it can be told. <laughs> I was making a joke with him on the BlizzCon Roundup, Joe, where I was like, why didn't you just tell us, you know, when you were telling us, <laughs> when you were telling us about how great it was to play Barbarians and stuff, why didn't you just tell us that you because, were one? Because Sanctuary had him locked under an NDA. That's that's what happened. Yeah, that's exactly I, what I said. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um. So, hey, how about that BlizzCon, huh? Yeah, so that was the thing that just happened. Oh, man, there was so much. We have a lot to talk about. There was a lot of news reveals, of course, and, you know, stuff about content and things like that. But uh, we're focused on lore here, and there was quite a lot of that, too. So let's just go ahead and jump in. Why don't we jump in with Diablo Immortal, actually? All right. That's actually a good place to jump in. Um, We had talked briefly about what might be coming and what it might mean and so forth. Uh, one of the things that's great about this is that they're going to basically pick it up about five years after the end of Diablo 2. Uh, so the World Stone has been shattered, fragments of it are all over Sanctuary, and now its its power is being it's like beings from both hell and, and possibly even heaven are trying to find the pieces and use them to their own advantage. Uh, there's a figure called Scorn uh, Herald of Terror, who is like Diablo's henchman, for lack of yeah. a better word. And he's out, he's out trying to find the various fragments to use them to bring Diablo back sooner. He's uh, an intern. Yes. That's Infernal it. intern. <laughs> it's Diablo's intern. intern of Terror. <laughs> Can I get you some coffee, sir? 
<laughs> no, see, here's the thing that I really like about this, though, because a lot of people didn't realize that there there is a 20-year gap between the end of Diablo 2 and the beginning of Diablo 3, and that 20-year gap has never really been addressed, not in detail. Like, yeah, we just, just the there was a leap. There was just a big leap there. Yeah, we just see a really old Deckard Cain at the beginning of Diablo 3. They've rebuilt Tristram over the past deck twenty years and th- that kind of thing. Yeah, we we knew it had passed, but we didn't. We don't know anything about it. There, so that's there wasn't be anything out there history-wise for that time period. So that's where this fits in, and I really appreciate that because it's like, yeah, I want to know how we got from the end of Diablo two to where we were at in Diablo three, and I'm hoping that Immortal will tell us. I what I want to have one of the, there's several things I want to have happen. One is to find out that the Diablo 2 Barbarian is the Barbarian we're seeing in Diablo Immortal, and he's the Barbarian from Diablo 3's dad. Because I've wanted that to be the case forever. Yeah. The <laughs> Sonya, Sonya from Diablo 3 to be Diablo, the Barbarian from Diablo 2's father, daughter. Um, and I've wanted that from the beginning. I've always wanted that to be the case. Um, I know that not all the characters get to be lore, but that's one of the ones I want. Is this uh, because she's actually is your daughter and you'd just like them to reflect that? Look, uh, I cannot <laughs> confirm nor deny at this time. No, no, that's, it's just a lore thing I've always wanted. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to they've talked about how they're going to do the, they're going to show the foundation of the Demon Hunters and how the, the you're going to get to see the Demon Hunter, Vala. You're going to get to see her like when she was just starting out. Um, that's really cool. Um, since we know there's going to be Crusaders and Necromancers, I'm hoping that we get more lore for what they were doing over that 20-year period. Um, cause there's at least, there's a pretty heavy implication that the person who teaches the necromancer from Diablo three is the necromancer from Diablo two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I'm interested in seeing what happened to all those heroes who weren't Nephilim. Remember, cause they were, they were around before the world stone got destroyed. None of them were the Nephilim. This was all back in Diablo two. Yeah. Yeah. So I am interested to see what happens with those guys. What are they up to? I mean, Vala obviously is a Nephilim. So the fact that we're going to get to see her beginnings means we're going to get to see at least one Nephilim before they know what they are. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff here. I want to see, we're going to get to see like zones. We haven't got to see in a while. One of them is like stuff from Diablo two of the tower from Diablo two is going to be showing up. Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of interesting stuff they can do with this. I mean, it is basically an MMO, uh, whatever you, you know, we we can, we don't need to have the discussion on format and platform. I was no. going to yeah. say, I, I, obviously, there are people that are pressed about the platform, and that's fine. We're not going to talk not here about to talk that about at all. That. No. No. We're, We're here, here to, to talk, talk about the story. And, and the story the is going to be... One of the things that they kind of hammered home in the different panels was that this game absolutely does have a story behind it. Like, they are telling a story with this game. It is an RPG. Um, it's not like just random Did you guys game. see the part where they... They talked about how they're going to actually have multiple stories. Yes. Yes. Like they're going to, this is going to be unfolding. They're going to have stories that progress. That to me is really, this, this game is an MMO and that means we're going to get, you know, unfolding lore throughout its existence. As long as it's around, we're going to get to see more stuff, which I think is amazing. They they said that they're starting at five years after the events in Diablo two, right? Yeah, it yes. starts five okay. years later. and then So they've got forward. 15 years of history to work with there, and there are a lot of stories that could be told in that time period, especially when you look at a game like WoW, and you think about the fact that World of Warcraft, one expansion is usually the course of a year, maybe two, in Azeroth's timeline. That's Legion's it. a little bit of an exception, I think, but... 
Um, I don't know about Legion. Uh, I don't think that they've given a definitive, here's the beginning and end of Legion, and it's been a year or two years. I know that Miss of Pandaria spanned two years in, in the yeah. game timeline, but it was an anomaly. It wasn't like the new normal. So, good question. Now, what I'm going to be really interested in, too, is something that I've been asking about since Diablo 3 dropped, and in looking at the classes they're choosing to start with, and yes, they can expand it later through game mechanics or whatever, but I'm interested what the story is going to be behind the Amazons and the Assassins and the Druids and where they are, because we haven't heard anything about them at all in any of the mediums, like nothing in the books, nothing in the comics, nothing in the games since Diablo 2. So I'm really curious personally what's going on with those because like we don't hear anything about them even in Diablo 3. Like there's no talk yeah. about them. Yeah. They they somebody did ask if there were they said why didn't you add the druid? Why didn't you add the druid if this takes place between 2 and 3? Why didn't you add the druid class? And they replied to that and said that they were planning on adding additional classes as time went on. Um the druid is not on the template for like the first ones that they want to add. They wanted to start out with Diablo three classes, of course, because people are used to playing those. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Druids come up at some point though, because that was a ridiculously popular class in Diablo two. I need my werebear. Yeah. Well, people have been, (laughs) people have been gunning to see them. So I'm like, okay, yeah. And you're absolutely right. I would love to hear more about that story. Like, where are they? They're they're gone in Diablo three. Nobody. I mean, there's no well, reference to any of it. Is there? Mention, there's a mention of the island that the Amazons come from. Yes, uh, but that's pretty much it, right? Yeah. The, the what's his name? Who I can't remember his name. Tyrael. Tyrael's like, what happened to the people we sent to the Scovos Isles? And uh, Lorathnol's like, yeah, we haven't heard back from them. Maybe you know, we don't know what happened to them. So now, that's that's all we know about Scovos right now. We don't know anything about what happened to the Amazons in particular, if they're still out there or what. Yeah, and the other reason that I really want to hear about the Druids, too, is because the World Stone and anything involving it seems like it would be very important to somebody who's, like, in tune with the Land of Sanctuary. Like, it would be well, relevant the origin, to their interests, yes. The origin of the Druids and the origin of the Barbarians are closely tied. Yes. Um, they, the, the Barbarians were founded by uh, Bolkathos, and the, the Druids were, were founded by Vasily slash Fiakagyar. And uh, each of them were like, we got to protect this thing. And the um, Bolkathos was like, we got to protect it by getting as many big, beefy dudes as we can and big, beefy ladies. We're not gender problem here. Everybody who's big and beefy can be involved and just sit on top of this thing and kill anybody who comes near it. Fiacogar is like, that's your solution to everything. And he's like, yes, because it works. Kill everything. Okay. (laughs) While you're doing that, I'll go, I'll take some of the less beefy ones and I'll teach them about nature and the world. Oh, and, and then they can transform into werebears and werewolves. Yeah. It's fine. They, they'll be able to, well, what will they be doing to defend the world stone? They'll turn into giant monsters. Okay. Yeah. They'll kill things yet. Yeah, yes, brother. They will kill things. Okay. Then I'm okay with this plan. So they broke off and each of them had their own, you know, separate thing, which is great. But I do want to see what's, what's happened to the children of Yakagiar. What, what are they doing there? They had more, it was more than just Druids. They had a whole culture up there. Um, and we have not heard or seen from it since the Worldstone got destroyed. Uh, did it, you know, did something in this game, like did the, did a, did a shattered fragment of the Worldstone show up and corrupt them all? Uh, is Are they now demons? Like, you know, what's going on? That would be something I'd like to see as well. There's a ton, ton of stuff we could see. I mean, one of the things they mentioned was getting to see what made Malfield give up. Mm-hmm. 
because Malfiel, this is when Malfiel abandons the Angaris Council and starts wandering the creation, looking for some sort of meaning. This is when that happens. And we could get to see it. We could get to see Malfiel making his his ultimate decision. So now there's, the, there's a ton of stuff that I would like to see. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping, too, that like if this leads to more Diablo cinematics as well. Whether I don't care what the format is, I want more of those because we haven't had nearly enough of them over the years. And uh, but you know, then I have to get on the outfit, and it's just a lot of work. Listen, man. listen, listen. This is what you get Mo-cap paid barbarian dollars for. Mocap yes. is hard. Yes. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I would love to see. Uh, I would love to see like a. I, first off, one of the reasons I wanted Diablo Two remastered was because I'd love to see the remastered cinematics. Let's Same. let's be real. Absolutely. Uh, oh my gosh. So, but I would love to. The, the cinematic for Diablo Mortal is pretty cool. I would love to see them do more stuff like that. I want to see them take a page from WoW and have more cinematics in the game and have them used to like explain what's going on and show us stuff that we wouldn't get to see otherwise. So yeah, I'm totally down for that. That would be really great. And really, regardless of what platform it's on, mobile mobile devices are more than capable of playing video, like high quality video. So unless, it's not you, like unless that. it's my phone. <laughs> I'm looking at the turns on. <laughs> I was gonna say I was, modern was mobile watching, devices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, flip phones, not so much, Joe. <laughs> Stop, stop trying to install this on your Nokia. Stop trying to make the sidekick happen. It's done. <laughs> now, and that's the, that's the other thing, too, is I'm, I'm also hoping that, like Diablo 3, that Diablo Immortal is popular enough that it expands. Like, I would love to see something like this on the Switch as well, because that's something I do have that I would love, because it's a bigger screen, almost tablet-like. Because, like, I... I want these stories. I want to be able to play through these stories. There's so much potential here. And like you guys have said, we have that 20 year gap to fill in. There's so many cool things that they could do inside of that. I'm, I'm legitimately excited for I this. Want, yeah. Like, like getting to see West March. Cause they said West March is going to be the, oh, star yes. of the city, the, the capital city for everybody. West March before it's all on Diddy. Yeah, West March before all hell breaks loose. But, you know, especially since it's West March between games. It's West March yeah. after Diablo 2 when, you know, the Dark Wanderer, you know, cut a swath through the whole world. Um, so there's there's a ton of stuff. Um, I, I'm partially, I mean, we should move on and talk about other stuff. But one of the things I want to see really badly is Blood Raven. Yes. Um, yes. Well, for that matter, all three of them. Uh, we, we, we forget this, but there are three heroes in Diablo the original Diablo. Those three heroes are canonically all appear in Diablo two. All three of them do. And they're all three of them are messed up. Uh, we know what happens to, you know, uh, I want to say Albrecht, but that's not his name. Um, oh, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah. The, but the, I know who you're talking Aiden, about. Aiden. Aiden. Yes. Yeah. You know what happens to Aiden? He becomes the dark wanderer. Blood Raven, the, the, the rogue from Diablo one becomes a nightmare who kills all of her own, her like, her own friends and so forth. And we end up having to destroy her. And the, uh, the wizard also shows up as a, as a demonic monster. So all three of them got messed up. I'm one of the things I'd love to see is more about where they come from, more about what happened to them. How did they end up getting messed up like that? Like, you know, the ones that weren't Aiden, there's a lot there. I would love to see. Okay. Before we move on. Um, and I didn't mention this right off the bat. I mean, I didn't think I needed to mention it right off the bat because we were starting off with Diablo and yeah. 
Um, we don't know much about the actual like storylines going on there, so there's not much there. We are going to talk, just so you guys are aware, you listeners are aware, we're going to talk about the stuff that was introduced in World of Warcraft. Um, we're going to hit Overwatch first, but we will be jumping into the stuff with WoW. If you avoided BlizzCon specifically because you didn't want any spoilers about future stuff, you might want to listen to this episode later because we're not, like, we're just going to talk about everything they talked about at BlizzCon. If it was mentioned at BlizzCon, we're going to mention it. So if you were avoiding any material just because you were kind of wary of spoilers, come back later. We'll still be here. We live on in the internet forever. All right. Uh, First, before we go into the WoW stuff, I want to talk about Overwatch because I... Yes. They did a number. Okay, so I was hoping for a McCree cinematic. I really was. Because McCree's story is one of those stories that is really undefined. We we had like some information about him. We knew he was part of the Deadlock gang when he was younger. And he was caught. They were busted by Overwatch during a sting operation. And McCree in particular... He was given a choice by Gabriel Reyes, and it was essentially, you can rot in jail forever, or you can join Blackwatch and work with me, and work under the over, like, under, under Overwatch, where nobody knows that we're there. And McCree chose the Blackwatch option, obviously. Um, why he picked it? I don't know. Maybe he just didn't want to rot in jail. But over time, he went from being kind of cynical about the whole thing to really embracing the idea of making up for his past sins and that kind of thing. That's about all we knew about McCree. We didn't know any of the history for the Deadlock gang, except that, you know, they were in Route 76. They were there, but who they were, how they got together, anything along those lines, didn't have any information on that. So I was hoping that we'd get that with the cinematic, and we did in a degree, to a degree, but then we got some other stuff too. So let's talk about the cinematic, because the cinematic was really interesting. McCree shows up in Route 76. He's eating very casually at a diner, waiting for something to happen. That something is an explosion that causes a train to crash to the ground, um, which kind of creates how Route 76 looks as in the game today. Um, And he did it on purpose, because there was something on that payload that he wanted. And that thing on the payload that he wanted was an Omnic. But before he could get it, he ran into his old friend, Ash, who is voiced by Jennifer Hale and probably, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I was pretty gung-ho about that character oh, yeah. the second she opened her mouth. <laughs> the minute I saw her, I was like, this is the new hero. Give me, give me, let me play now. Come on. Yeah. So Ash, Ash grew up being fed with a silver spoon in a life where it you know she was wealthy her parents were wealthy she had everything she wanted but she didn't really and she busted out of that with her trusty robot butler bob and jumped into creating her own kind of family and she was the leader of the deadlock gang which was like oh okay all right that's how they came to be um well not, not just the leader she created it yeah, she created it and with, with like three other people. And McCree was one of those people that joined in. He wasn't a leader or anything. He was just working with them. But there's obviously some history, some implied history there between him and Ash. Well, Michael uh, Chu has said straight up that they didn't date at any point. They're not 
an ex-couple. No, but they, she's got his going picture on, on her bike. See, yeah, but so you know, there's that's, something that's going on there. Like, there's some. Well, it's either it's either a she liked him and never said anything, or b she has his picture there so that when she ran into him again, she could punch him. <laughs> well, I mean, look at the way he. If you look at the short, one of the things you notice is that he set the whole thing up to use them. Oh, to, absolutely. To bring the train down. Absolutely. So he said, you know, y'all never could resist a good tip. I mean, that's. Straight up, he's basically saying the only reason you're here is because I manipulated you to be here. And I think that was the wrong thing to say. Like, I thought it was a really interesting interaction between the two of them, where the second she found out that's the thing he wanted, that he set it all up to get that thing, she was determined not to give it to him. Yeah. And that's there's a lot going on between the two characters in that short. There, there is. is. That was fascinating. Beyond that, though, um, once he takes everybody down, because of course he does, because he's McCree, um he gets the payload, opens the payload. There is an Omnic in it. He has a little doohickey where he got it from. Who knows that he puts in that robot's, that Omnic's forehead and all of a sudden it wakes up. She wakes up. Um, we've heard that her name is Echo. That's about yeah, all we I know about totally her. I totally thought it was Athena when we first saw it. He, well, the thing is, is it's not Athena because we know. That, yeah. that Omnic has a Vishkar symbol on her forehead. From yes. the Vishkar, the corp- the same corporation that Symmetra was working for, so there's something going on here. The other the other interesting thing about this whole interaction between Echo and McCree is that McCree said they're calling the gang back together. They they asked for me, but they need you, and basically told her where to go. So she was well, working with Overwatch at one point because she knew who who he was talking about when he said the gang. But well, he specifically says to go see the monkey. Yeah, but here's here's the weird part, right? When they're talking, she looks down at his arm and says, what happened? I don't think that McCree's always been missing an arm. And I don't no. think that he was missing an arm with when he was with the Deadlock gang. It happened well, even somewhere Ash, there in between. Even Ash says something about that, too. Because yeah. like, earlier in, the, earlier in the, the short, Ash points that out, like grabs you know, his arm and says, oh, this is new. Yeah. You know? Like, doesn't say what happened, doesn't, like, just points out that, like, yeah, this no, wasn't there when she was around, right? There's no reference to what exactly happened there. And I know that uh, Black, in, in the uh, Overwatch Retribution, that cinematic, he had the mechanical arm in that, yeah? Yeah. He did. He had, uh, since we've seen McCree, since we've yeah. had McCree, he's had the arm in every media, every comic, every short, everything that he's ever been in, he's had the mechanical arm. So somewhere between where he left Deadlock and joined Blackwatch and then left Blackwatch, he lost his arm. And he was with Overwatch for a while before he lost his arm. Because Echo... You're wrong, Joe. Am I? There's an an Anna Overwatch picture with McCree in it. He's got his arm. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm looking at it right now. It's the picture with very, very young Farah. Anna's an adult. She's standing between Reyes and Jack Morrison. You've got Reinhardt behind them. You've got Torbjorn in front, and I think Mercy behind him. And then you've got McCree behind Mercy. McCree has both arms. Okay, you need to like uh, send me a link to that picture yeah. later, later, Rossi, because um, I'm gonna be working. I need. I'm trying to figure out the timeline here because that's what I do. Oh my god, you are absolutely <laughs> right. You are absolutely right. It was Farah as a young kid. <laughs> But yeah, that's pretty much uh, that. That's that's what I do 
is figure out the timeline. So I'm like, okay, where did this timeline all sort out? And there is uh there is reference to Echo elsewhere in the original in the original original game art when they had that first piece of concept art, there was a there was an omnic in the back that looked like her. So the thing is is Echo is not the next hero. Echo is not a hero. Echo is just there. But this is the first time in a while that we've seen the recall thing addressed pretty directly um, since Reinhardt, really. Uh, Reinhardt's cinematic was him getting the notice about the recall and deciding whether or not to go back. And then he decided to go back. Um, Brigitte joined up with him afterwards. She chose to go with him and join Overwatch herself, or at least, you know, stay by Reinhardt's side. Um as a direct result of that. But we hadn't seen McCree in particular. Like, this is a guy who used to work with Gabriel Reyes. It's also a guy who was really critical of what Gabriel Reyes was doing, particularly in later instances in as as far as, like, Overwatch's history and downfall goes. So it was kind of cool seeing that story nudge forward a little bit. I'm just hoping, and I've got my fingers crossed, I am hoping that we see we see you know what's happening next i i just want them to start pushing this story forward i'm not the only one right no you're definitely not and one of the one of the things that i i took away from this like just this entire short this reveal everything is that it gives us very few answers but then gives us more questions that sort of seem to propel us forward so many questions because it's like right how did why did McCree have that little doohickey? Why was Echo in that crate? Why was she on that train being moved? Where did she go? Did she miss the entire fall of Overwatch? She must have because yeah. she wasn't there when McCree lost his arm, which means she wasn't there when Blackwatch uh, and everything else went haywire. Well, one thing we know for sure because I just went and checked. Jesse McCree has both yep. arms when he's in Blackwatch. Yep, during that event, he they, like Rossi pointed that out. I don't know how I missed that. Oh, you know what? I wonder if he. I wonder if he was there. I wonder if he was there in uh, the Swedish headquarters when all everything went down between Reyes and. I wonder. Oh, we need that story, Michael so Chu. I, I... If you're listening, I don't think you are, but <laughs> if you are, or if a friend of yours is, just point him at this, please. We need that story. We need that story about Overwatch. Just give us a novel. Like, you don't have to make a cinematic. You could give us a novel or a comic book or something, um, anything. Please. Just So, uh. <laughs> speaking of other interesting things, going back to Echo, uh, apparently, and, and I just went back and after reading a little bit here, she was in the Overwatch Museum during the heist with uh, Widowmaker and Reaper way back when. So, like, I'm wondering, like, there was a statue of her or something. I'm wondering if it was the actual her without her like AI unit or something. And that's what they were transported. Like that would be interesting because it would fit, it would fit really well. Cause like the Overwatch museum gets a, is like an attempted heist by, you know, the agents of talent to get Doomfist gauntlet back. What are they going to do with all the stuff that's there? That's potentially dangerous. Move it. I could see that being something that they would do. I I don't know. Like I, I got to bring this up. The, uh, they're talking about, how Echo's original, the pitch meeting in Prometh- for Prometheus, the thing that became Overwatch, there was a, an Omnic named Iris. Mm-hmm. It was very similar to Echo. And they're talking about how maybe that's related to the Iris, the Omnic thing. Yeah, the one that, that Zenyatta keeps talking about. Yeah, so that's yeah. interesting. Well, I mean, that's yeah. Got, I'm thinking about in terms of she might be linked to the whole 
Omnic Rebellion in the first place. The whole okay. I am seeing. I am seeing in in additional material here that in early art, concept art for Iris, her design featured both the Athena and Vishkar Corporation logos at different points, but they were only added to fill in empty spaces on the design and did not accurately reflect her lore. I don't know if that's the case with Echo. Don't know. I I I need to do more research. I just need to do more research. But she's fascinating. Um, Ash is fascinating. Do not get me wrong. I do love Ash, and I love everything going on with that story. And I love that we're getting more McCree finally. Um, I just love that Bob has a handlebar mustache. Bob is so good. <laughs> now, if they would go back to Hanzo's story, I would be really happy. <laughs> Because when we last left Hanzo, Genji was like, hey, figure out your stuff. See ya. And then jumped off a building and we didn't see him again. And then we saw Hanzo later on in that comic, the end of the year comic, where he was just like buying a kid a cake or something. I don't know. Anyway, he was out in the middle of nowhere doing his own thing. We haven't seen anything about Hanzo since. Please give me more Hanzo. Thank you. One of the things I'm seeing here, I looked in a couple of places, McCree is listed as a founder of the Deadlock Gang. Yeah, he was one of the original the four. Fish. Yeah, he well, was one of the original what I, four. Here, here's, a, here's my thing. We now know where two of them are. Where are the other two? What happened that's to a, them? That's an excellent question, and we don't have an answer for that. Yep. Um, yeah. Just I'm in terms presuming... of things, you know, the things I want to see down the road, I'd like to yeah. see that. I'm presuming either Overwatch took those legs out. Maybe one of them was with McCree when when that sting operation went down. I don't know. Um, Or they're still out there somewhere. I don't know. Overwatch seemed to be pretty focused on taking the Deadwatch gang out, though. Or taking the Deadlock gang. Excuse me. Deadwatch. Everything is watched now. Um, So, yeah, there's more stuff here. There's more stuff here to go into. They introduced a lot of stuff. Looking at the origin short with the image of the four founding members, it does look like it's a really, really, really young McCree. Yeah. uh, In that original photo with his original arm, with his character hat, his little kerchief, and his cigar. So, but yeah, I'm interested in the other two as well. Because, like, even if they were taken out, we know that Overwatch didn't exactly kill, like, them. And so, like, where are they? What are they doing In prison somewhere? How soon are they going to be broken out? I mean, it took a while if to they get Doomfist out of there, but are they, work- are they working with Talon now? You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things. There's all kinds of questions going on there. And I I don't know how any of this fits into the whole global conspiracy thing that Sombra's been eyeballing, and that's something they haven't revisited in a while either. There's so many dif- different little disparate pieces here and there, and I really, I just want them to pull together some kind of cohesive story and give it to us. I, I don't mind these little bits and pieces, but I would like something more substantial. You know what I mean? I mean... If they're listening, I wouldn't say no to coming back to that whole graphic novel idea that you guys were throwing around at one point, because that would be really great. Just saying. Okay. That's enough about Overwatch. Let's talk about World of Warcraft, because there was so much. There was so much that we got. Um, one of the things that I want to talk to talk about initially, because we didn't get a chance to address it on the, the podcast that we did, is uh, I want to talk about the short that we got for 8.1 lost honor. It was a cinematic. Oh, yes. Um, and we didn't get 
to talk about that much on the roundup yesterday, so I kind of want to address that straight up off the bat. Uh, Sourfang. We know that Sourfang has been taken into custody by the Alliance. Uh, if you're an Alliance player, you saw that happen during the battle for Lordaeron. If you're a Horde player, you were aware of that happening, and that was reinforced when you broke into the stockades and you found Sourfang down there. And you have a little conversation with Sourfang, and he says, I don't want to go back. It's not my horde. I just want to stay here. And he stay, he stays put. He doesn't he doesn't leave with you. He has every opportunity to leave with you, but he does not. Um, in the battle for Lordaeron, one of the last things that Anduin says to Sourfang is, we'll, we'll talk later. Lost honor is them finally getting to talk. And that's a conversation. What did you guys think of that one? Rossi, go ahead and talk. You haven't talked much. Uh, okay. I was glad that we finally got something that wasn't just Sarfang's orc pain. Like we actually got to see other people and like what the Alliance is thinking and doing. Um, I loved the bit with Gan up front where he's like, you know, we're going to be conscripting the farmers next. And, you know, the Anduin's statement of, you know, this, I thought we were fighting to, to do something, but now it's like fighting to bring peace. Now it feels like we're just fighting. And I liked, I did like Sarfang when you finally get, First off, Anduin, stop locking yourself in cages with giant orcs. Seriously, (laughs) stop doing this. Why do you keep... Your father would literally, if he wasn't already dead, he would be like beating his head against the wall if someone can... Oh, yeah, and he locked himself in with a sarfang. Why? Why does he keep doing this? But I did like the moment between the two of them. Um, I liked sarfang finally just admitting that she's going to ruin everything. She's going to destroy the horde. I want Mm -hmm. the horde back. Um... For all that, you know, he is he is a, key, a creature of the place he came from. He is very much the the best and the worst of what orcs can be. He's done he's done the worst things possible. He's done the best things possible. He, he's interesting for that, and I did like the exchange between the two of them. Um, I, I'll admit I didn't see Anduin sort of whoopsie daisy. Oops, I seem to have forgotten to close this door. Oh my! Moment that was mm. new to me. You know that's. That fits with Anduin's character, though, in my oh, opinion. Yeah, it does. I just didn't expect it. I didn't think that was going to be... I thought they were going to basically have Sorfang break out. I didn't think it was going to be break out in quotes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, like, as good I as thought... Sorfang, as good as Sorfang is, though, like this, this to me makes a little more sense than, you know... And, and don't get me wrong. I love Sorfang. He is one of my absolute favorite characters, Horde side always has been because he's complicated and his hands are dirty and he has real, for lack of a better term, real emotion compared to some of the other characters that we've interacted with over the years. But even I don't think he's capable of escaping Stormwind by himself. Like, that's a tall order, even for him. Did you ever try to raid Orgrimmar back in Classic? Because he packed a punch at the front gates. (laughs) My thing isn't that he's powerful enough to break out. My thing is I've been in the the stockades of, like, Swiss cheese. Like, I mean, a a, a null stage to break out, for God's sake. (laughs) If if Hogger can seriously threaten to escape, then I think Sorfang can pull it off. But I liked that in a way, I felt like this was more fitting because Sorfang didn't have the motivation to leave before now. He, he didn't see a way perfectly, out. He, he had a way out. He didn't take it. He was mm-hmm. perfectly content to sit there and eventually die. Well, I wouldn't say content because he was really angry about the fact that he never got his honorable death or anything like that. And maybe that's why he kind of tried to threaten Anduin a little bit, but it wasn't working with Anduin. 
because that's not who Anwin is. Anwin isn't isn't going to approach it from a from a oh you tried you know you're trying to intimidate me I'm gonna stab you or what that's not Anwin. Anwin, what I really liked about the cinematic is that Anwin finally came face to face with something that maybe he didn't really want to be thinking about too much, and it was the fact that they can't beat. Sylvanas Windrunner. They cannot take her down by themselves. Well, no, they have they been can't. grinding soldiers through the whole war thing. And yes, Sylvanas has been doing the same dang thing on her side, but Sylvanas can raise those soldiers from the dead and her army is still strong. So how are you supposed to combat that? Really, how are you supposed to combat that? And that's what Anwin's had to struggle with here, is it's like, how do I beat her? I don't think we can beat her, but I know somebody who I think does know how, well, or has some ideas. I, but the thing is, it's a very Anduin moment, too, because it's not necessarily a a moment of, I think this is a powerful warrior that can wage war with me, or through the shadows, or anything like that. It's... This is a very strong figure in the Horde who doesn't like what's going on and can be divisive, who can get people to his side and erode her power base. Because right now, who really, besides Bane, who is incredibly soft-spoken and hasn't really done anything this expansion yet, is there to stand up and say, yo, listen, Dark Lady, I know you got plans, but this ain't ain't the way we want to do it, and this is wrong, and... You know, nobody's doing that. Nobody. So everybody's just kind of like going along with it. Here's what Anduin knows about the Horde. The Horde is based on a system of honor. That's what he was taught. That's what, you know, probably he learned from Jaina from some aspects because Jaina was really close with Thrall. Even his father. But I mean, even meeting with Bane, even meeting with Bane when everything went down with Karen. That was one of those things that Anduin took away with him. The stuff that the Horde is doing right now is not honorable. And Anduin knows, and there's that connection in his head, that if the Horde was running like this, and they're being run like this now, I saw this once before. I saw it with Garrosh Hellscream. What happened with Garrosh? They turned against him. Well, the difference... The, and and maybe there's the potential for that here because really what Sylvanas is doing, not everybody's going to agree with it. So, Sourfang represents, he's like a mentor figure for Anduin from the other side. And he's someone that could potentially teach Anduin, look, this is how the Horde thinks. This is how the Horde is supposed to think. And this is what Sylvanas is doing right now. Well, and to, to sort of like just finish my earlier thought real quick, it's just I think that even beyond that, which is which is absolutely true, that's something he could be for Anduin. Even if he doesn't do that with Anduin, it, he's still a figure that's going to start pulling people away from what's going on with the Horde. Because if Sarfang feels like this, other people are going to feel like this. And it is slightly different than what happened with Garrosh because Garrosh was, you know, whipping everybody up into this this fervor and frenzy of this is honor, this is strength, this is how we get back what was taken from us. Yeah, and Anduin you know, didn't know that, though. Anduin just knew he didn't. that when things went down, the Horde turned against their own war chief. Very, very true, but at this point, it's now, like I said, it's it's this erosion of her power base. Because at the end of the day, if all she has left is the Forsaken, like, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of Forsaken, but the Forsaken versus literally everybody else, my money's on everybody else. And Sarfang is that person that could start drawing those orcs that are like not happy about it away 
the torn would definitely flock to something like that. Um, it, you know, you could see the Pandaren. Yeah, Bane's looking for an excuse to book it. The Pandaren would move away from this as well. Like it's now you have a figure that can do that. Where right now there isn't anybody stepping up to do that. There's nobody fighting against Sylvanas' wishes. And I think the other important key takeaway from this is that Anwin did leave that door open. He left that door open. And he did it deliberately. And it wasn't it wasn't an oopsie, I'm gonna let the horde prisoner go. It was a message to Sourfang. And the message was, I trust you. That's all it was. Go handle your business. Go that, handle your business. Well, I trust you. That's that's what I was trying to get about in terms of why Sarfang left now. Yeah. It's he didn't leave before because he didn't see a way out. He saw a way out physically. Sure, he could have gotten out of the cell. That's not my point. And he saw a way out in terms of death, but a, and he could have had a death anytime he wanted, but it would have been at the hands of a few Stormwind guards. And that's, you know, okay, but that's not really what he was going for with his honorable death. It's yeah, it's hardly it's, honorable. But when Anduin leaves the cell door open, Sorfang now sees a way out of this situation. And the situation mm-hmm. isn't I'm locked in a cell somewhere. The situation is the horde is being led by a mad woman from his perspective. I'm not saying she's actually crazy. I'm saying from his perspective, she's dishonorable to the point of madness. Like everything she does is unpredictable to him because it will not be honorable. Yep. And not only that, it's but I mean, beep, like boop, she's beep, boop, does not compute in orcish brain, you know? Well, and it's like, even, even with how she like, presents her tactics it's still like it doesn't make sense to sarfang in the way that he would wage war even if there was a need to wage war right like yeah, this is a guy who has firsthand experience of what guldan was like mm-hmm. our guldan he has firsthand experience of how the old horde was led because he was the second in command for a for a while there he has he understands... experience of going through the dark portal for the first time and setting foot on a strange new world that was yeah, but my point is that he understands stuff like raising the dead to use them in your army. He's seen that before. It's not alien or new to him, but he knows where it ends. It's, it's not when Sylvanas is doing that kind of thing. The whole reason it's so shocking and abominable is because he knows where that ends. It doesn't end with victory for your side. It ends with you destroyed mm-hmm. for all that Sylvanas. Like right now, here's the thing we've been talking about it. Like, you know, Anduin can't beat Sylvanas. I don't think it's that he doesn't think the Alliance can beat her. I think he doesn't want to pay the price yeah. that it would take. Because they've right already now, paid so much in Legion. But plus, right now, the Alliance is winning. Yep. Right now, as of 8.1, when 8.1 comes out, the story is the that upper hand. Yeah. the Alliance is winning this fight, but it's costing them. It's, and it's a cost he doesn't want to pay. Um, we, we know this is happening, but it wasn't specifically mentioned at, at BlizzCon, so I don't know if I want to drag it too much in. But we know what happens with the Zara lore. We know that that battle happens. That's something that's in the lore. Anduin is looking at this. He's looking at what happens with the Night Elves. The Night Elves don't ask him for permission to go back over. Tyrande does not say, hey, do you mind if we... She just goes. Yeah. And, and I think that we should probably, uh, this is a good place to dovetail. Uh, so go ahead and finish what you were saying. But but my point is that Andrew is looking at the Alliance and saying, we're, we're losing it. We're, we are not. What are we going to be like when this is over? If we don't, if we just try and grind them down, 
if we just try and beat them with pure military force, maybe we can do it. But what are we going to be? What are we going to be when it's done? That's why he wants to reach out to the other side. Because if the other side helps, if you get the horde to turn on their war chief, if you get people that you can work with on the other side, maybe you can't ever be friends. But you can have peace. Yeah, you can at least stop fighting. And that's the thing. The fighting it's, is is its own problem. It's building that it's building that common bond that he was trying to do in before so, the storm. This this is something I appreciate on a couple different levels. And and I was literally just talking about this on Twitter before we started recording. One of my biggest gripes has always been how short-sighted every decision we make is. Whether it's an NPC, an important NPC, or the player characters, we are always in the heat of the moment. We are always thinking about the immediate fight and not what the aftermath is going to be. Like, even when we went to Antorus, like, we, we just, we went because we had to. We knew we had to. But look at everything that happened afterwards, right? Like, we're still dealing with that fallout as well. We're still dealing with fallout from many expansions ago because we didn't think. We just acted. Anduin is one of those NPCs, one of those characters, one of those lore figures that thinks ahead. He thinks think he long that. term. I think he learned part of that from Velen. I think Honestly. so too. Well, Velen, his dad at the end as well, because Varian was starting to get to that point as well and starting to look things more analytically long term. Like even even Gen has calmed down to a point where he's slightly less like a rabid dog without a leash. Like we're getting to this point where these these figures are starting to act like leaders, and that's important to me. And Anduin is chief among them. He's thinking long term. He's thinking what is the effect. And what we're seeing from him here is literally that. It's a show don't tell moment, and I appreciate that. It's one of the the times that I I appreciate Anduin so much for that because of that. Okay, let's go ahead and switch gears here and actually. I'm going to kind of segue into the other cinematic that we saw at BlizzCon because it involves the Night Elves, which we were just talking about. Um, and that would be the Terror of Darkshore cinematic, or as I like to call it, this is why you don't piss off the Calderay. Because, dang! I have, a bear with moose wait, I have been waiting. I have been waiting for Malfurion to show his teeth. Man, I have been waiting for that dude he must have the patience of I don't know what, but we finally see him go off in that cinematic, and it is terrifying. <laughs> I've always thought this about Malfurion. One of the things I've thought about him for a long time is that, keep in mind, he slept for a lot of it, so he wasn't conscious. He was in the dream for a lot of it, but 10,000 years ago, Malfurion lost his temper. Mm -hmm. He got mad and decided, I'm going to use my rage to solve this problem. I'm going to solve it this way and he blew up cal he blew up calendor he imploded the continent he did that that was him now we can make the point that it was necessary i'm not disputing that it was necessary but what does it do to you when you end your world you end everything you grew up with he you grew changed, up he changed yeah. the face of the planet that was him yeah. And we talk about Suramar, and we talk about how Suramar was Taranda's homeland, home city, and about how, you know, she, it, Malfurion was from Suramar, too. And it's gone. It was gone until just, you know, until Legion. He ruined it. He ended it, as far as he knew. Everything he grew up with, he destroyed. And yes, he soldiered on, and yes, they tried to make a new world, 
And yes, he was the leader for a lot of it. But imagine Malfurion was never the confident take charge one of the two brothers. That was his brother. That wasn't him. He didn't want... If if Illidan could have believed him, he could have realized his brother never wanted to usurp him or eclipse him or even be separated from him. But Illidan couldn't believe it. When 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 Tyrande chose Malfurion, it, it poisoned Illidan inside, but it was also a complete shock to Malfurion. He's always been that guy who would have been happier just studying nature in the background, not not having to step up, not having to be in charge, and he got put in charge. And from experience, that makes a rage that festers. And the fact that he's kept it as calm as he has for as long as he has and try, really tried hard with the neutrality thing, prob- and we've all complained about the neutrality thing. I've complained about it, that he was too passive. He wasn't doing things. Uh, I think in Cataclysm, I complained about it a lot. I mean, oh, yeah. No, I'm right there with you. Right yeah, there with you. The whole Firelands thing was just like, Malfurion, what are you doing? You yeah, just came and... from Darkshore. What's going on down? Th- like, yeah. I I think what people tend to forget about Malfurion is that he <laughs> did have that presence in Legion. And he was there. He was there in Valshara. We didn't see him a whole heck of a lot after Valshara, but you also have to consider what he lost at the end of Valshara. Yeah. Ysera's gone. And Cenarius is back in the dream. Yeah. Well, Ysera is not gone, gone. She's in the dream now, too. Right? Yeah, like, but both that's a they're there if you go into the dream, but they're not out in the world. Sure. They're effectively dead. and They're gone. And Ursoc. Yeah. Don't forget that as well. Yeah, it's a huge trauma and it happens on his watch and then his people get destroyed. He never wanted that tree in the first place. Teldrassil is not something that he, he flat out rejected it. He told friend Fandral, no, we shouldn't make it. It's, it's presumptuous. If if the, if the uh, aspects wanted us to have our immortality back, they would have said so. They have not. You can't just decide you're going to, to force it. You can't. This is arrogance itself. And, the only reason that it happened was because Fr- Frandral knocked him unconscious, you know, with, with, with what was the name of that stupid Marrowgrain? Yeah. With Marrowgrain. Yep. He Which we held him. with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my defense, I didn't do those quests happily. I, well, I did do them though. So, uh... but yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot, the past decade or so, however long it's been in game since original, you know, classic wow came out and we, you know, Malfurion was taking his nappy nap because he had been poisoned and, you know, we didn't, he wasn't around to now has been for them astonishingly active. These are people who live thousands of years. Even if they're not immortal, they live thousands of years. The this last, group of them. Yeah. You, know? you have to look at, you know, they're 10,000 years old. The last couple of years have been kind of like the blink of an eye, but what a blink. Yeah. It's, you know, if, if I think a lot of people in the real world can understand that feeling of, Oh God, what's going on. The night elves would have that in spades. Everything changed twice. Like building that giant world tree and actually building a city in it. That that's like, what? Like, why did we need a city again? Oh, cause the other people need us to have a city so that they, they, we can visit, they can visit it. I, I mean, Hyjal was gone. Hyjal yeah. was gone at the end of the Third War, and they needed a new place to stay. So they built, Fandral built Teldrassil to give them a place to stay, and also to try and get the immortality thing back, which didn't work, obviously. But he was also doing a bunch of shady stuff on the side, because 
old gods and Xavius and everything else that happened in Storm Rage. Storm Rage is one of those underrated novels. Um, there are elements in there that I didn't really care for, but there are also elements in there that are good as far as, you know, telling the story of what happened with Teldrassil um, and also what happened with Fandral. Everything that leads up to where we see Fandral in Cataclysm happens in Storm Rage, so I would recommend going and checking it out if you haven't. Um, there, like I said, some parts work better than others. There are some shaky pieces in there, but it's good lore. I mean, it's all good lore. Uh, what I appreciated here, though, was Taronda. We have Taronda with the dark eyes. She's taken on the Night Warrior, which is like another aspect of a loon. And what I really liked in this cinematic was you saw the imagery. Taronda is seeing through the eyes of that owl, and that owl is shining like the moon, just a beacon. And everything that she sees is relayed to Malfurion. And where that owl appears, Malfurion is not far behind, which is kind of cool. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed it, but at the very end of the cinematic, when it was panning back in the sky, you saw the moon, but it was eclipsed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So it's yeah. like a black moon. Yeah. And, and also, Teldrassil is now wrapped in some kind of ghostly mist. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's and let's also just... talk about how Tehran looks like super serious like when they cut to her and Malfurion oh. at that, that last scene she's got the horror movie eyes going on like the whole thing the cinematic can't played like a horror movie it did it really and did I actually liked that they for once the the horde who were often depicted as the monsters you know orcs and trolls oh they were terrified that, they were getting murdered like he was he was butchering them like he comes out of the darkness and then you don't see that 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 high that blood elf paladin anymore you never see that blood elf paladin again. Just one second, she's like, what's going on? Next second, gone. And you never see her again. And then the thing with the orc laying on the ground, yeah. and Malfurion just does this gesture, and the ground starts eating that orc alive. I'm like, this is why you don't take off an arch druid. This is, this is why, yeah, we haven't seen Malfurion snap ever. He's been this calm presence for so long. And he's kind of exuded that calm presence for so long. Thousands just, and thousands of years. I just hope, I hope and hope and hope that the Horde isn't dumb enough to send Hamul up. To what? I hope they're not dumb enough to send Hamul Rune Totem up there. Oh, oh yeah. No, 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 no. That would not be good. No. Do not do that. Um, if Hamul feels his loyalty to the Horde outweighs, then Hamul is going to die. Um, See... But if, I don't see that for that character. I don't see. No, I, if I don't think Hamul goes do up there and he's like, "Look, Malfurion, we have to calm this down." Malfurion would be like, "You want to calm it down? Help me." Now I could totally see Malf. Uh, I could. Always, I could totally see Hamul being one of the first ones to go to Sarfang's side and be like, "I was yeah, going to say, I I find it interesting, and I'm kind of wondering where Hamul is sitting in all of this because Hamul was the one that originally came to Karen when the Forsaken wanted to join the Horde." And said, you know, maybe we should because we can help them. Yeah, like, and that was the that, Hummel was the one who argued for their inclusion and was kind of one of the pivotal factors for why Thrall said, "Okay, we'll let you guys in the horde." Yeah, but keep in mind it was Magatha Grimtotem who. Yeah. First, yeah. So there's that. Plus, Hummel has the problem of basically being right now. He's down there in Silithus trying to deal with that. Yeah. And that's a problem. <laughs> like. 
Oh, yeah. I feel like at least to some degree, Humu will be like, look, while we're doing all this stupid things we're doing, the planet is dying. Have you not heard the diamond dwarf screaming around it? Because that's happening. The planet, the thing we're standing on, the, the, the whole world that we all live on is dying right now. Like, as I'm talking to you. So there's a lot could happen with Hamul. Um, I really just, I just don't want to see the Hamul fighting Malfurion. I don't want to see that. I don't think it's a good idea. If they do that, I will, I will be very angry. They better not. Okay, we're going to move on just a little bit and scooch a little bit forward. And this is where we're really diving into spoiler material, folks, because we're going to talk about the 8.2 reveals that we were given. Hello, not one, but two new zones. Um, One of them kind of expected. I mean, it was sort of a given that we we, we would be facing off against Ashara eventually. So Nazjatar, not, I mean, a surprise because I wasn't expecting it quite so soon. But okay, I knew that one was coming. The other one. Let's talk about the other one for a second. We're going to Mechagon. And yeah. What? <laughs> so that was a complete surprise. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think anyone's real. I, was, I don't remember anyone. I know people talking about the possibility of them as an allied race, but nobody was like, and yeah, we're going to go to a lost continent of mechanical gnomes. You didn't know that? Yeah, that's totally happening. Well, it's not even a lost continent. It's an underground. It's like an entire under undermire of mechanical gnomes. Yeah, I just, whoa. I mean, I, I've wanted them to do stuff with gnomes and mecha gnomes for a long time. I mean, I even wrote something for the old site called Cult of the Mechanical, where it was about how the like, mechanical gnomes could like, be a threat. Yes, the world. yes. But this is like, no, nah, I did not see this coming. Like, what? What happened? Oh. Mecha who? What? And not only that, but like, it's delightfully dark and creepy as well. Like, which is something like we joke about with gnomes a lot, but, or at least I do, but we haven't really had a showcase of like the dark side of gnomes and how that genius is just really kind of close to to evil and weird. One of the best gnome role players I ever met. Her character was just shy of completely insane. But she was a brilliant scientist, and a lot of the stuff that she did was really questionable because she worked with that whole body parts replacing body parts, that kind of like there was that madness going on with she was so good, and I can't remember her name now, but um a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing with the mechagon area is kind of reflected reflective of that, and I just I can't wait to see it uh so the the way that it's working in Mechagon, there's this guy who's King Mechagon and the gnomes that are with him, it's there's a society, there's like a secret society of gnomes where the more of your body that you've replaced with mechanical parts, robot parts, maybe leaning back towards that whole mechanome ancestry that they have, the more highly respected you are. Um and there's a group of outcasts that aren't necessarily cool with this idea called the Junker Gnomes. But if you look at the the concept art for these Mecha Gnomes, it, it's robot bodies with gnome faces and their eyes have been replaced in some cases by mechanical pieces. I mean, it's just creepy. It's like steampunk society on this horrifying level. Um when when people were kicking around the idea of 
of mechanomes as being an allied race. I was like, well, that just doesn't seem very relevant. Why would that? And then the tweets came. Yeah. um, This immediately makes it relevant because it's coming from a different direction. Because when I hear mechanomes, I think of the dudes up in Northrum that we left behind a long, long time ago. I don't think of, oh, there's a brand new city, a continent that we've never seen full of these creepy, creepy, creepy gnomes. (laughs) And one of the things I like about it too is it sort of mirrors the um oh god why can't I think of the name of them in in Aldir um the ones that wanted to return to stone the cat the cat centaurs Tolvir Tolvir yeah it, it sort of it sort of mirrors that right because one of the things we've seen by some of these race, races that have been isolated is when they succumb to the curse of flesh they don't they don't like that they don't they don't want to be flesh anymore they want to go back and it makes perfect sense that like gnomes of all creatures would be like we were once purely mechanical we remember that. I miss that. Let's be mechanical again. I don't need this arm. Rip. What's interesting is they didn't remember it. Um, yeah, because Mecha- you go back to... Mechazod, when Mechazod, of yeah. all people... Um, well, the ones we've interacted up, with don't remember it. Yeah, but it's still interesting because when Mechazod shows up, he wants to decurse the flesh everybody. And he seems to think he can do it to everybody. And he's so like, horrifying friendly about... Horrifyingly yeah. friendly about it. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly... Mechagon... To me, I bet you 10 to 1 he's going to be like Mechazod. He's going to be a similar, you know, kind of figure. He's probably going to be a primordial uh, Mechanome, one of the original ones. Or another Watcher, because that's the other thing, too. Don't forget, like, we had a Titan Watcher in Northrend that was a Mechanome, you know? Well, yeah, but he wasn't originally. That's what's really interesting about Mimiron. Mimiron wasn't originally a Mechanome. He didn't look like that. That's what they rebuilt him as when he died. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Because Loki, Lokin basically got him killed, uh, and his peop- he didn't expect the uh, mechanomes to come together and be like, "We gotta save him." So they rebuilt a place for his essence to go, and then he went he went kind of nuts because he wasn't originally a mechanome. Uh, so if there's another mechanome watcher, that would imply some things. It would be interesting. I can't wait to see what's in this zone. Um, it is going to be, a, there's a mega dungeon involved. The mega dungeon is kind of on the lines of Return to Karazhan, where it's oh. only for a while. Oh, um, wait a minute. What? I, I just remembered something. Ooh. So, wait, okay. So, remember when the Watchers, like, battled with the uh, the Elemental Lords? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, wasn't, wasn't Mimron, like, the one that fought alongside Loken against Neptalon the Tidehunter? Mm-hmm. It is perfect that they are bringing this back up now. Absolutely perfect. Oh, because we're talking about going to to, to Najatar. Well, that doesn't mean there's not other things that were trapped under the water when they were fighting Neptalon. And we know that they clashed armies, not just individuals. Armies. There's going to be something tying these events together. I I can feel it. That would make sense because yeah, then the Mechanomes were the servants of Memoron. They would have probably been his army. Yeah. Let's talk about the other zone that we're getting because there's a lot of history here. Um, we are going to Nazjatar. It's the ancient land of the Naga and the home of Queen Ashara. The way it was described is that we are going to be under attack by the Naga and we're going to follow a trail out into the ocean and we're going to find this crack in the ocean. And in there is Nazjatar. It's rising out of the sea, which is only kind of appropriate because I believe that this uh, 
patch is called Rise of Ashara. So it's yep. almost appropriate on a literal level because it's not just Ashara rising as this horrifying new enemy or anything. Nazatar is rising out of the sea, which is weird. But it different. makes a per- it makes a lot of sense though. Like in the grand scheme of things, like if she if she's using this as her opportunity to sort of take over, which you kind of get a little bit about that in the Shrine of Storms. Like you get a little bit of story about that and what what's at play here. And I, like I was always starting to think, I don't think she was really corrupting the humans at behest of necessarily her old god patron. I think she was sort of doing it herself to see if she could. Because like, oh, I created Naga, or you know, I can still create Naga. What what happens if I do that with humans? Do I get more servants? This is great. Uh, but now all this chaos is going on, all this war is going on, and she still has this wonderful, wonderful army of fish elves to sort of stage war on and capitalize on that sort of weakness that's going on right now. Take advantage of that war that we're waging on these lovely islands that just happen to be right next to where she is. Well, and the thing is, is, I mean, we see it reflected in the Lost Honor short. And when mm-hmm. looking at what remains of the Alliance forces, they are depleted. And it's the same thing with the Horde forces. They are being depleted as well. Both sides are waging war, but they are losing soldiers left and right. They are losing people who are capable of fighting these kind of battles. And those heroes, those paragons that we had wielding artifact weapons back in Legion, those artifact weapons are gone. Sure, those heroes might still be there, but they aren't working with superpowers anymore. So things are getting limited and things are getting scarce. And I feel like as Shara is like, yeah, now I can take advantage of that. Cause guess what? My forces outnumber the both of you and my powers eclipse anything that you could throw at me. And it makes me wonder too, like how she can expand that and how that's going to play into it as well. Because like Sylvanas raising the dead, like, we don't know how far Azara's influence or power, or if you want to call it corruption, corruption has spread and how much are fully under her sway. We know she can talk to Tide Sages because they hear her. They go, some of them go crazy. And I don't know what else that's going to like bring out from it, but I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic there. I think it's kind of interesting to me because um, during the Warcraft Q&A panel, I don't know if you guys heard that one or not um someone asked something about is sylvanas going to go the way of garrosh and alex afrasiabi he said something interesting he said what do you think sylvanas says when or sees when she looks or what do you think she thinks when she thinks about garrosh hellscream she thinks that's an amateur there's an amateur he's an amateur i can do so much better and well i think that if you look at that and you think about Ashara, Ashara is looking at the rest of the known world as it exists right now and says, mm-hmm. you are all children compared to what I'm capable of. Because she was capable a lot of a lot when she was leading the Night Elves so, so many thousands of years ago. And that was before the old gods empowered her. So now the... I don't know what was... we're going to get when we get there, but it's going to be crazy. There's another interesting part of that, too, and this was part of that uh, when we started talking about the new stories, old heroes, new stories, and they pre- they, they put up that image of, uh, what was it? It was Anduin, it was Jaina, uh, it was, I can't remember who from the Horde side, uh, besides Rokan, 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 I think. 
but then Sylvanas. And Sylvanas was the interesting one. And I tweeted this out after seeing it. Oh, because God. this ties in with it. She's got Zalatath. She's just that hanging on. Absolutely Zalatath. Looks just like Zalatath to me. She and made would a make, new friend. <laughs> she made a new friend. And it would fit in perfectly with what we were talking about like months ago at this point, where yeah, you know, Sylvanas looks at Garrosh and says, that was an amateur. Yeah, that was an amateur trying to take a heart of a incomplete old god. Well, here's Zaltath. It's a piece of an old god. Let's me maybe let's her talk to an old god. Maybe she's making a deal. Like, does that mean she winds up aligning somewhat with Ashara? Like, how does it all going to work out? Like, this is really interesting. Me, I guess the question to me is: is is she making a deal with this t- chatty talking blade, or? Has she got it under her control? Because I don't know what kind of bargain Sylvanas would... I mean, she made that bargain with Helia, and that I was going to go say, she, we see that she's capable or she's willing to make bargains, especially if it suits her needs yeah, but or that gives one her what with, she wants. That one with Helia didn't go anywhere, so maybe she's tired of making bargains, and maybe she's trying to take things by force, and maybe Zalatath is just the thing that will help her do that. Maybe. We have to one thing. We have to wait to see what happens in the uh, the the eight point one mini raid, the one underneath uh, the shrine of the storm. There, the yeah, the... that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because that's that's where the Zalatath stuff is going to be dealt with. That's where we the return of Zalatath happens. We know that from to a certain degree. We don't know much about it. So a lot of that is like we can we can assume. We know what's going on, but we don't actually know what's going on. And uh, this could go yes. in one of two ways, too. I mean, Sylvanas could be working with Zalatath and working with the old gods, which would be kind of um, contrived. I mean, we've seen it before. Or she could be using Zalatath to manipulate the old gods because uh, the Void was scared of her. I'd yep. like to think that the void was scared of her for a reason. Maybe it's because she she's capable of doing things with the void that other creatures are not for some reason that we don't comprehend yet. I don't know. Well, because she's not bound to the cycle of life and death like everything else. She's not no. she's not bound to light, light light and dark like everything else. So it would make perfect sense. Like there's so many things they could do. They do with not this. live. They do not die. Mm-hmm. They are beyond the cycle. Ah! Now, here's Wait, here's implies something with the Void Lords. The Void Lords themselves might effectively have died. I don't know. Like they might be dead things, manner of speaking. Which doesn't mean that they're from you know the Death Pole and all that. Is di- Shadowlands are a different place, but that's something to think about. No, the one thing that I hope for this, and this is something that I've said before, is I and and I think echoed by a lot of people is we definitely don't want a Garrosh 2.0 story. And it sounds like we're not going to get a Garrosh 2.0 story, which makes me happy. No. And and that is good because we've said this before. I know Rossi has said this. Whether you love or hate Solana, she is a great literary character because of how complicated she is. I like that. Yeah, you don't have to like her as a character to accept that she's an interesting character. She's a multi-layered character. I mean, I like her for what she does for the story i i don't like her like i'm not a fan of her i think she she's monstrous and evil but well, and you need monstrous thing. evil people yeah in the it story. was the same thing with with garrosh i loved garrosh hellscream as a character i thought he was phenomenal and i'm still kind of 
upset that he ended the way that he did, but it was almost appropriate because he kind of came back to that full circle point, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't agree with anything that he did. I thought that everything that he did was horrible. All the stuff he was doing to the Horde was horrible. What he did to Theramore was horrible. But he was a great character. Like, he was just a great... Sometimes you need those characters to do those things that you don't like. You got to have those characters. If everybody, if everybody in a game just did things that you liked, you would have Animal Crossing, and that's not World of Warcraft. Heck, quite frankly, there's people in Animal Crossing I don't like, and they do horrible things. That, yeah, Tom they, Nook and his you know. <laughs> <Tom> just... <laughs> Sylvanas, the Tom Nook of Warcraft. Okay, um, I think. We will go ahead and end it there unless there's any other little lore tidbits you guys want to talk about. Not small enough that we could get to it in the amount of time we have left. Okay. Joe, you got anything you want to touch on real quick? Nah, real quick would be a real, real stretch there. Okay. All right, then we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. But you guys, if you have any questions about any of the lore that was introduced at BlizzCon, uh, we didn't even touch on Heroes of the Storm. Maybe we should have, but that's okay. We'll just go ahead and let that rest. If you guys have any questions, though, for Lore Watch about any of the lore information that was introduced at BlizzCon or anything that's coming up in World of Warcraft for that matter because you know we've been talking about that too um you can go ahead and email that to podcast at blizzardwatch.com just be sure that you put lore watch in the subject line so that we know that it's intended for the show uh, blizzard watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzard watch and your continued support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow blizzard watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ads free site experience um, final thoughts, you guys. What was the one thing that stuck with you the most, lore-wise, from uh, BlizzCon 2018? Joe. Oh, God, you're going to make me pick one thing? That's no one fair. thing. The, the thing that stuck out the most. I would have to say that we, we probably the Najatar stuff. Because, okay. again, we know we knew we were going there, but the scope of it, like, the it's growing it's bigger than we anticipated as far as its importance in what's going to happen in this expansion and that makes me very very happy close second the fact that solana says Zalatath. okay rossi what about you just the one lore thing that's been sticking out to you from blizzcon 2018 um that we're going to get to find out what happened between diablo 2 and 3 like that 20 year period of time is going to get covered there's going to be story for it they're going to see what happened what's been going on and you know that that to me is fascinating like that's that's something i've wanted for a long time so i'm really excited about that that's my thing for this for this this blizzcon that was my number one i have plenty of number two and threes and so forth there's a, there was a laundry list of things but that's my number one okay um i'm gonna go the other direction from you guys and i will say you know all of this world of warcraft stuff utterly fascinating completely i i can't wait to dive into it all but i need to know more about echo and I need to know more about the fall of Overwatch. And I need an Overwatch novel. Please, guys, just just hand one over. It's okay. I'll write it for you. Call me. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> there was just way too much Overwatch. There was just enough of a taste there to immediately leave me wanting so much more. So maybe we'll get that at some point. I don't know. Anyway, that wraps us up for Lore Watch. Thanks, you guys, so much for listening. And we will see you again in two weeks. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.